As you listen to this evening's talk, <clears throat> I'd, uh, I'd invite you to keep a proportion of your attention in your own experience, especially in the sense of your body as it sits and breathes and listens. As you may have noticed, when, you, when one listens to a talk or indeed a piece of music, it can be very easy to to lose that, to get lost in what one's hearing. And <clears throat> whether it's a talk or a piece of music, um, the experience is so much enriched by staying embodied as one listens. The Buddha's path of practice and of awakening was and is Um, radically different from the sort of spiritual practice being done in the culture that surrounded him. So his uh, spiritual context was one where the main theme was one of escape, of getting out of the body of the feelings, of the mind states. It, it was a path of transcendence. Getting out of, of society, even. And Siddhartha, as uh, so the legends say, spent years doing those sorts of practices. Practicing extreme asceticism, so really depriving the body of food, of comfort, of its needs, in order somehow to escape, to get out of what seemed like a, uh, a trap, a restriction, something that was binding him to this life. And although we may read of the stories of ascetics doing these extraordinary austerities and it seems sort of weird and pathological, I think we can see, can't we, in the experience of, of being here and watching our own minds, that the instinct to escape from the difficult is age-old. Is, is, is timeless. That, that somehow it seems almost hardwired into us to turn away from what we find unpleasant or difficult. And so we find the mind, um, for instance, escaping into fantasy And, and reliving or pre-living experience. And Rob spoke so powerfully last night, didn't he, about the way in which faced with the difficulties for the profound challenge of the climate crisis and indeed the searing poverty of our times, something in us so easily wants to turn away, wants to find ways of not really meeting the pain of that. And yet, as the Buddha's path showed and his own awakening showed, a mature freedom a mature and integrated freedom comes not from getting out but from getting in. Not from dismissing or escaping or turning away but from a profound, interested, kindly, patient turning towards 
seeking to know the experience of the unpleasant and the difficult and the painful. And in doing so, changing our relationship with it. Because as we've been seeing and you've been seeing in your practice and reporting in, in the groups, it's, it's the change in relationship that can make all the difference. So under the Bodhi tree, Siddhartha turned towards what he had previously rejected. He turned towards the body, the feelings, the mind states. And sought a creative engagement, a way of relating skillfully with interest, with kindness, with an ardent questioning and with compassion. And he discovered the radical freedom that is possible within this life There's a, a, a Zen story that I love, which is very simple, but uh, it asks the question that Rob asked last night. Uh, it describes how <clears throat> a student went to the Zen master and said, what's the goal of a lifetime of practice? What's the goal of all of this? The big question. And the answer came back. An appropriate response. An appropriate response. And I find that very inspiring. As a vision for practice. uh, As a vision for why... We're doing this to cultivate a more and more, our capacity for a more and more appropriate response to the circumstances of our lives as we encounter them. To develop a skill in response. And I'd like to speak a bit this evening about the Four Noble Truths because. I think it's really through practicing with those, coming to understand them and to live them more and more deeply, that we make ourselves capable of a more and more appropriate response. These truths, these four truths were, if you like, the, um, they're the heart of what the Buddha is said to have understood under that Bodhi tree. They're, they're seen as the, the hallmark of a Buddha, traditionally, is that a Buddha teaches the Four Noble Truths. So they stand really at the, um, the centre of the Buddha's teaching and they're, their Analysis, the understanding they offer of suffering and the ending of suffering is is sort of present throughout the Buddhist teachings wherever one looks. And although the phrase noble truths can sound like it's inviting a sort of creedal belief that we're asked to believe in them somehow, This is really not how the Buddha presented them. These are truths to be investigated. These are guidance to be explored, to be tried out in one's own life, to be tested in one's own experience. And really, as I talk about them, I'd really really invite you to... um, 
to receive what you hear in that spirit. And some of you are very familiar, very, very familiar with these truths. But yet, the practice of them is the practice of a lifetime. And so, um, really inviting you as, as you listen, just to keep that experiential sense of yourself sitting here and reflecting as you hear. And it's this process that, that, that leads them to sometimes be called the four ennobling truths because it's when we act upon them, it's when we digest them, when our understanding and practice of them becomes experiential, that there, there is an ennobling that takes place. And there are different understandings of them, different traditions, different teachers understand them in different ways. And I, I just want to acknowledge that. And, and that I'm going to be offering really one way, which, which I hope may be helpful. When you, when you think of the Buddha having this experience of full, unsurpassable awakening and liberation and enlightenment, you think, well, what, you know, what, would, what would one say after that as one's first report on the experience? You, know, you might expect some great triumphant um, opening to his first teaching that, that describes this indescribable experience of Nibbana. And yet, what we find is something not esoteric to which people couldn't relate, but something to which everybody can relate. Which is the first noble truth and the simple statement that life involves suffering. That life is difficult. And and one can feel the the humanity somehow and that, that sense of, of turning towards the human condition and engaging with it and saying something that is true for all human beings, that life involves dukkha, this, this word that has been used a bit so far on this retreat, D-U-K-K-H-A, which, which really has a whole range of meanings. It's often translated suffering, but that's, that's not really adequate for the range that's being pointed to in this word dukkha. It, it can describe everything from anguish, tortured anguish, to the most slight sense of world weariness or incompleteness. And, and sometimes it, the, the translation that's, that's used, which I think is helpful, is the word unsatisfactoriness. Not sure that word's actually in the dictionary, but it's used quite a lot. Um, dissatisfaction might be another one. Incompleteness, some people find as a useful felt experience of one aspect of dukkha. And this first noble truth that the Buddha says at the start of his first sermon, the beginning of his teaching career, life involves dukkha. Or, or in fact, as it's sometimes translated, there is dukkha. There is this experience of dukkha. I think it, it does point to this. Well, there's a real reassurance in there, isn't there? It's not you're experiencing dukkha or I'm in dukkha. It's there is dukkha. It's not a personal failing that we find life difficult. It's not our particular, it's not a mistake that it's difficult. There's a part of us that, until we fully absorb the first noble truth, can think it's a mistake that life is difficult. I'm doing something wrong because I find the path bumpy. And part of really opening to this truth is opening an embodied opening, an experiential opening to this is how it is. There is dukkha. 
Life involves this. This is what being a human being involves. And there can be a real sense, as we open to that, a real sense of connection and compassion. This is our common humanity. That until we're fully awakened, we experience this universal sense of unsatisfactoriness. And the Buddha pointed to three aspects of our experience in reaction to which dukkha can arise. Three, three, yeah, three if you like, bases or aspects of our experience that dukkha can arise in relation to. And one of these, the first of these is, is if you like, the ordinary, obvious suffering. Of, of physical pain and discomfort and emotional pain and discomfort. The fact that being a sensitive human being involves encountering the unpleasant, the painful knee, the sense of waking up in the night and not being able to get back to sleep the end of a relationship, the death of someone we love, conflicts at home or at work, what's sometimes summarized as separation from the loved and association with the unloved. It's a rather formal way of putting it, but you get the sense. It's the regular physical and mental discomfort that we experience as human beings. This discomfort is unavoidable. And in itself, physical and emotional discomfort or unpleasantness isn't the problem. The problem comes that the Buddha is suggesting and we're invited to test in our own experience by what we add, by what we add to the painful knee or back, what we add to the, the unpleasant memory that comes up as we sit, what we add to the experience of being awake in the middle of the night. In a famous passage, uh, the Buddha said this, When an untaught worldling is touched by a painful bodily feeling, he worries and grieves, he laments, beats his breast, weeps and is distraught. He thus experiences two kinds of feelings, a bodily and a mental feeling. It is as if a man were pierced by an arrow And following the first piercing, he is hit by a second arrow. So that person will experience feelings caused by two arrows. But in the case of a well-taught noble disciple, when he is touched by a painful feeling, he will not worry or grieve and lament. He will not beat his breast and weep, nor will he be distraught. It is one kind of feeling that he experiences. Or she experiences a bodily feeling, not a mental one. It's as if a person was pierced by an arrow but was not hit by a second arrow following the first one. So this person experiences feelings caused by a single arrow only. The Buddha seems to be suggesting that the unpleasant is unavoidable. But that the suffering that we add to it is optional. Because it's we who fire the second arrow. And one way of seeing what we're doing here is that this is, if you like, second arrow work. We're learning how not to fire the second arrow. 
and we can see, can't we, that, that it's often the second arrow that prevents us from finding an appropriate response to the circumstances in our lives that are difficult. It's our reaction to it. So that's the first area of, of, of dukkha that the Buddha highlights. And the second is dukkha related to change. Don't, don't we notice on retreat how we can, have, we can have a sit that feels really, really good, really peaceful, really calm. We feel, oh, at last, I'm getting it. You know, and, and so we very carefully go up and go for our walking period and, and come back and have the expectation, well, I'm going to do that again you know, and build on it. This could be even better this time. And what happens? Our mind is all over the shop. You know? we, we can't find what we're trying to do and it feels restless and difficult. You know? This is... And we have that experience and what do we do? We fire the second arrow, don't we? You know? uh, and we get frustrated and we you know, um, blame ourselves, decide we're never going to be good meditators, we're never going to get it. And that's the dukkha related to change. Change is an un, uh, unavoidable, it's absolutely integral to absolutely everything. That it is changing, it's impermanent. We look in the mirror, we see how we're changing. We buy something and it breaks. We see how our relationships go through cycles. This is all in itself not the problem. The dukkha comes from what we add to that, our resistance to change. And this is profoundly connected with the third aspect of our experience, which gives rise to dukkha, which is uh, dukkha arising from what the Buddha called conditionality. And this is a way of really pointing to the fact that our experience at every moment is shifting, is created by an almost infinite number of factors. Conditions are changing all the time. What is giving rise to our experience is profound and shifting and dynamic and complex and unpredictable and uncontrollable. You know, between those two sittings, all sorts of circumstances shift and change, not least the fact we then have an expectation by the time we come to the second sitting that it's going to be as good as the first. And this changes things. And yet we have an investment in wanting to see things as fixed and solid and controllable. Particularly we want to see ourselves as a positive, fixed, controllable object and it's the mismatch between the shifting changeable nature of reality and the fixed and controllable enduring world and self that would give us a sense of control that can give rise to the dukkha in itself it's not a problem but there's a mismatch between how we see things or how we want to see things and how they are So to summarise this first truth, it it points to the fact that life involves difficulty. It involves the unpleasant. It involves the painful, alongside the joyful and the pleasant. It's characterised by change and it's characterised by unpredictability, uncontrollability. And this in itself is not the problem. This truth points to the fact that it's our resistance to this. It's our reaction to that. It's our desire to escape from this that creates the dukkha that is the second arrow. 
And each of these truths, each of these, these noble truths, has both, if you like, a, a statement of diagnosis and a statement of um, action to be taken. The, the model uh, is a medical one, really. The, the text, um, in some ways, is set out like contemporary medical um, uh, diagnoses. So the, the Buddha is, is, in this first truth, pointing to the difficulty, the problem that we have, which is dukkha. And he's saying what we need to do with it is to understand it. So the action recommended for this first, first truth is that dukkha should be understood And we can see how this points us not away from suffering, but towards it. We need to learn to move close to the difficulties of our lives, whether it's the difficulty of the uncomfortable body, the difficulty of the painful memory, the difficulties that we encounter in the day-to-day. That, that we're invited in this truth to find the, the understanding that comes from turning towards, from being willing to feel and to investigate, to, to notice the habitual response to want to escape, but instead to practice as we are in this retreat again and again being willing to befriend what we find difficult Ajahn Chara a very respected Thai forest master said to run from suffering is to run towards it to run from suffering is to run towards it And we can spend our whole lives doing that. These these noble truths point us in a different direction. They say that the freedom from suffering comes from being willing to turn towards it, to feel it, to investigate it, to befriend it, to understand its nature and its origins. Even now as you sit here, just, just sense what you're relationship is with your experience. Seeing, practicing again, a a moment or two of befriending, turning towards, feeling the difference that makes. And, of course, uh, we often need to learn how to resource ourselves as we do that. This is not about um, turning towards the most difficult experiences unresourced. And a lot of practice is about this balance of resource and edge. Finding a sense of resource. Maybe it's in the sense of the lower half of the body. Maybe it's in a sense of the, 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 the balloon of energy that we rest in. Maybe it's in a sense of listening or a sense of loving kindness, finding the resource that enables us then to turn towards what we find difficult, to come into relationship with what we find difficult. And with the big arrows of our lives, this is a moment-by-moment practice. We, we take one moment at a time. Uh, and we practice with the small arrows. We practice with the salad running out at lunch or the uh, pins and needles in the leg, you know, or the fact that it's raining today. You know. We practice with those, those little arrows, uh, and that develops our capacity for working with the bigger ones. So this first truth is saying that, that dukkha needs to be understood, needs to be investigated and Related to. And the second truth 
really helps helps us in that process of understanding because it says a radical thing. It says something surprising, which is that all our experiences of difficulty and of suffering, of dukkha, have a single origin. And until we investigate, we may tend to assume that there are lots of causes of suffering or difficulty in our lives. But the Buddha says, no, look, and you'll see that all suffering has a single origin. And that origin is what the Pali word is, tanha, T-A-N-H-A, which again is not so easy to translate, or there's a range of meanings, but it, it, some meanings are craving, grasping, attachment to desire, reactivity, wanting things to be different from how they are. And it's, it's something really just to... Again, you may have done this many times before, but just in this moment, just to register, do can I relate to that? That suffering, the dukkha that I experience, is at its base caused by wanting things to be different from how they are. The 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 um the sense of tanha is of an unquenchable thirst. So a thirst that, although we, we try to assuage it, we can't. We feel compelled to keep trying. And we can feel that sense of compulsion in, this, in some of the words we use. I must, I should, if only I need. Those sorts of words that express the felt sense of tanha as a sort of clinging, a grasping, a craving. Uh, I think as I was reflecting on what Rob said last night, it was, I was finding this sense of tanha as reactivity, the, the reactivity that prevents us from really opening to the truth of something. We're so busy reacting the reactivity to climate change that can send us into numbing or denial. And, and so really you know, exploring what tanha means in our experience. And again, it's pointing to the fact that it's our relationship with what happens. It's our need to have things a particular way that is the origin of our suffering. And, and, you know, we can hear this and, and know it intellectually and say, oh yeah, I know the origin of suffering, it's attachment to desire, it's craving. And, you know, we can um, really have that off pat and have read books about it. And, of course, the challenge is really to embody that understanding in the encounter with the difficult. As Rob said on the first night, you know, what we're practicing are ways of seeing. And it's so easy, isn't it, when we have the painful back, to put our energy into trying to get rid of it, rather than experientially seeing, ah, it's my relationship, it's the, the struggle to get rid of those feelings is part of what keeps them in being. It keeps them in place. It's the pushing away, the resistance, that keeps it alive. You know, and, and somehow, when we, get, when we get into, when we get close to the unpleasant, the, the anger or the sadness or the tiredness or the physical discomfort, it's... Uh, we find it so easy to forget what we sort of cognitively know, which is that suffering is caused by our relationship with experience. And I think this is one of the reasons why 
what, hearing these teachings again and again is helpful and really getting clear about them at a conceptual level because that gives us a chance when we are in the middle of the encounter with the difficult to remember, okay, it, you know, I can look here at how I'm relating to this experience, how I'm relating to my wandering mind or my painful knee or that difficult memory. And the Buddha, this, this tanha, has, has uh, again, three aspects to it that I find very helpful just to um, have distinguished. Um, the first aspect of craving is the craving for sensual pleasure, which can sound a bit grim, you know, to, to say, it sounds like you've got a downer on sensual pleasure, but... but you know what I think what's really interesting to see is you know it's the the senses can be satisfied you know we we can feel thirsty or we can feel sexual desire, and those desires can be satisfied, but it's the unquenchable quality of tanha that is what he's pointing to here, which is our tendency to look to these pleasures look to to, to pleasure, to give me happiness. And, and, you know, we reflected a little bit last night on the power of adverts and the messages that we get in our culture about the things giving us happiness. And, and we can see the power of this craving for pleasure in our society and, and the assumption that this is where happiness lies. And the Buddha compared it to giving a bone, a, a sort of a blooded bone to a dog, but a bone that had no meat on it. So the dog chews it and chews it and chews it, but can get no nourishment from it. And so we can see that, you know, that, that, that as a, as an, um, Uh, one way in which we, we get ourselves locked into craving, into the sort of um, demand, for, demand on experience that, that generates unsatisfactoriness and dukkha and suffering is through our craving for happiness through sensual pleasure and finding that it can't provide. And the second is what he called the craving to become, the craving to be or to become. And at a basic level, that might be the, the desire to be alive. But there is also the ways in which um, uh, that in more specific sense, it's to become a certain sort of person, to be alive in a certain sort of way, to be someone who is loved, to be someone who's respected, to be someone who's a good meditator, to have this sort of job, to have this sort of lifestyle, to have this sort of relationship. It's, it's the believing, and I think it's so important to see the difference between, a, between healthy aspiration, where we might really have a healthy aspiration to practice in a certain way, or to live in a certain way. What what makes it unhealthy is when we again make our happiness depend on that. I'll only be happy if I become a consultant or if I live in a big house or if I have children or if I have a certain wage or if I meet this sort of person. So when we make our happiness hostage, if you like, to achieving a certain desire that we crave, that we suffer. And the third sort of of craving that the Buddha points to is is the craving, if you like, for its opposite, which is the craving not to, to be but for extinction, not to be. And, and this is the craving that can very um, 
You know, at at its extreme end is suicide. But there can be all sorts of occasions where we can feel like, oh, I don't want to be here. Or, I don't want to be like this. I don't want to be the sort of person who has an uncomfortable body. Or who has a wandering mind. Or who looks like this. Or who feels like this. Or who loses his job. Or whose kids behave like this. And I think this craving not to be also, again, if we link it with last evening's talk, you know, the the numbness that we can go into around difficulty. Wanting to push it away. Wanting not to feel. This is all covered in this aspect of what the Buddha is pointing to. And you can hear in, in what we're saying, what I'm saying here, that, that, that there is this also this, this aspect of craving that wants to be a certain sort of person, wants to be a certain sort of self. And we can feel, can't we, the difference between Wanting to, you know, wanting not to have a wandering mind right now. And what we do with that, which is to turn it into a self. We end up saying, you know, oh, I just can't do this practice. I'm never going to be able to do this practice. I've been practicing all these years and I still, we're day three of the retreat. Still can't get my mind to stay stable. I don't know why I'm doing this. And, and you can feel that, that, that plank that Rob mentioned this morning of past and future growing longer and longer and longer. Can't you? As as one one thinks in these terms, and we can see that part of what makes it so difficult to let go is because we have this sense of a self that we either do or don't want to be, and we make our happiness depend on either being it or not being it. You know, we can, we can sometimes have a sense that, you know, my, my whole future happiness and my sense of meaning in life depends on dot, dot, dot. Me getting better at meditation or me meeting the right person. Me getting that job. And, and when the self swings in, in that, in that way, when the self comes in in this, this gesture of grasping, which is also so easily a gesture of selfing, we can see why it's so difficult to let go. Because we're we're trying so hard to be or not to be a certain sort of person. Our capacity for imagining things to be different from how they are, as I said a couple of nights ago, has huge evolutionary advantage. You know, it's what lies behind the human capacity for invention. And it can have a huge emotional cost. In, in, in the face of the unpleasant, we find ourselves imagining the pleasant, wanting to get rid of the unpleasant, trying to create our fantasies of how we think things should be. In the face of the pleasant, we find ourselves working hard to try to make sure this somehow continues or that we get more of it and we find ourselves caught in that gap that I spoke about which they call discrepancy based processing where we're stuck between our idea of how we think things are or how we think we are and and how we think they should be and how we think we should be have I said that clearly enough it didn't come out quite as clearly as I was Intending, you know, this gap between how things are and how we think they should be. And, and all human suffering occurs within that gap. And tanha, or craving, refers to this way we make our happiness dependent upon things being different from how they are. The the unpleasant going away, the pleasant staying. 
So the second noble truth is saying that, that, that the origin of all suffering is attachment to the desire for things to be different. And the action that the Buddha recommends with that is that attachment to desire should be let go of, should be abandoned. As he put it, nothing whatsoever should be clung to as I, me or mine. Another way of putting that in another context would be don't take anything personally. And we may think that this is impossible, you know, because we have such a deep-seated resistance to it. But thankfully there aren't just two noble truths. Um, When I said to to Rob earlier that I was going to talk about them, quite a lot about the first and second noble truths. He said, oh, is it going to be a depressing talk then? You know. um, but <laughs> Thankfully, there is a third and a fourth noble truth. <laughs> and, and what the third noble truth points to is that suffering can be ended. Suffering can cease. And there are many ways of understanding this and many levels of understanding this. Um, And it points at one level to the full and complete liberation that the Buddha experienced, where the mental mechanisms that generate dukkha have been completely dismantled, where the tendencies running within us that, that... lead to the arising of suffering and unsatisfactoriness, have been uprooted. And so, in a sense, there's, 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 the, there's an aspiration in this truth towards complete liberation. But thankfully, we, we don't have to wait until then to experience the profound, the profound benefits of what the Buddha is describing in the Four Noble Truths, the the profound release that can come as we let go of our resistance to how things are. We can really genuinely experience in our practice a sense that certain tendencies that have been within our personality and that have been painful within our personality have ceased have been uprooted. Unskillful habits falling away. Views that seemed intractable. We, we, We discover are optional. And we don't any longer need to live within them. And this is an experience that that those here who've been practicing for some time will know, even if it's just at a small level. But what we can also experience is the way in which we can liberate, we can discover the ending of suffering in this moment. Not the complete ending, but the way in which we can liberate this moment from some of what trammels it, some of what constricts it and constrains it. And again, this is something that some of you have been reporting in the the groups today. The sense of discovering, ah, I don't have to keep doing that. Or, Or when I really allow these sensations, something eases. Or when I see that that view that I've been holding of myself or my practice, when I see that that's optional, There's a real sense of relief and release. We can feel the the easing and the peace that come in moments when we let go of craving and clinging, even if it's only briefly. And again, 
not to overlook these. We, we practice with the small towards the big. We practice with the, the salad. We practice with the knee. We practice with the long queue for the shower in the morning or whatever it is. And, and it is seeing the effects of clinging and resistance and avoidance, seeing the effects of tanha in our lives and seeing also the effects of those moments of letting go, those times when we're able to accept that this is how it is in this moment or when we can really allow the experience in the body to be as it is, to unfold as it does. And we feel the release. It's through seeing that again and again and again. Seeing it at the large level in our lives. You know, the, the big interpersonal level of conflict or difficulty and seeing what happens when there is a letting go or releasing or an accepting or an opening to or an allowing. And seeing it on retreat maybe at the microscopic level. How just a, a subtle aversion to the sensations in the belly or across the chest. A subtle belief that somehow this shouldn't be here. When we let go of that and something really opens up or the whole experience dissolves and there's no longer sensation there at all. It's, it's through seeing this again and again that we begin to get, the mind begins to get the sense of, ah, oh, This is the way to go. When we learn to relax the resistance to how things are, to relax with, to breathe with this memory, this painful thought, this painful back, this Awakeness at two o'clock in the morning. This grief. When we learn to, to do that, to, to, if you like, make our peace with both the pleasant and the unpleasant, we begin to get the flavour of what it is to taste a sense of liberation. Uh, and, and the Buddha said, just as the ocean tastes the same everywhere, so the taste of Nibbana is the same, whether it's in a moment of releasing or in much more profound levels of awakening. This is a, a path of, of progressive letting go. Progressive letting go. Ajahn Chah said, do everything with a mind that lets go. And he he also said, speaking about this progression, he said famously, if you let go a little, you get a little peace. If you let go a lot, you get a lot of peace. If you let go completely, you gain or realize complete peace, your struggles with the world will have come to an end. So this third noble truth uh, encourages us not just um, as an idea, but as an experience to cultivate, to know the ending of suffering. And in a sense, this is where the conditionality that I spoke of earlier, where you know, the sense of the unpredictability of conditions comes to our aid. Because the Buddha saw that just as dukkha arises, suffering arises due to certain conditions, If we change those conditions, dukkha can cease. Uh, And the path of practice that we're engaged in and that he 
outlined in his teaching is about creating the conditions for this letting go within which dukkha ceases. And the fourth noble truth, which I'll speak about a little later in the week, really, I think, can be seen as, as if you like, a, a training program in, in creating the conditions for the deep understanding of dukkha and the deep letting go of craving that allows suffering to cease. So these, these teachings of the noble truths that I've been talking about, of dukkha that is to be understood, of the origin of dukkha in craving that is to be let go of and abandoned, of the freedom from dukkha which is to be experienced, to be known in our own experience, both in moments and in a path of progressive awakening. These are the the noble truths that, that encourage us not to turn away, not to escape, but to turn towards, to investigate, to understand and to let go. And that what this enables is is not what this is about is not resignation in the face of suffering but a creative and compassionate engagement that is an appropriate response it suggests that until we really see and understand clearly we are going to be lost or we're going to be caught in reactivity in an intolerance of the difficult in an addiction to fixing. And it's for this reason that we need to train our intention again and again to return to the place of difficulty and to see if we can relate to it differently. This is what builds our capacity for mature change and mature freedom. What do you do with a life that won't go away, even on retreat? Well, these truths invite us to practice relaxing our resistance to it and relating to it differently. Ian Forster said, we must be willing to let go of the life we had planned so, so as to have and to enjoy the life that is waiting for us. And I think these truths point us to a freedom, not a freedom from, not the freedom from that is the freedom of trying to escape, but a freedom with and within our lives that by transforming how we relate and how we see we bring about a transformation of the conditions themselves within which we live I'd like to finish with a poem and it's a poem by Wendell Berry and it's called The Sycamore In the place that is my own place, whose earth I am shaped in and must bear, there is an old tree growing, a great sycamore that is a wondrous healer of itself. Fences have been tied to it, nails driven into it, hacks and whittles cut in it, the lightning has burned it. There is no year it has flourished in that has not harmed it. There is a hollow in it that is its death, though its living brims whitely at the lip of the darkness.
and flows outward. Over all its scars has come the seamless white of the bark. It bears the gnarls of its history, healed over. It has risen to a strange perfection in the warp and bending of its long growth. It has gathered all accidents into its purpose, has become the intention and radiance of its dark fate. It is a fact, sublime, mystical, and unassailable. In all the country, there is no other like it. I recognize in it a principle, an indwelling, the same as itself and greater that I would be ruled by. I see that it stands in its place and feeds upon it and is fed upon and is native and maker. Let's sit together for a few moments. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.